following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from LifePoint Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Well, today we're going to be in Romans 1, uh, verses 1 through 7. Uh, but before we, we get to the text, uh, my, during my sophomore year of college, uh, one of my roommates uh, was a freshman named Dan. And uh, Dan, he made himself a name uh, there at college because Dan was known for liking the ladies. Now, the problem is, is that the ladies didn't exactly like Dan. And uh, for example, a couple months uh, into his first semester at college, we had a, a formal event there on campus, and Dan really wanted to have a date. And so Dan, he started at, you know, that's good. And so Dan, he's going to find himself a date. But, but the problem was, is that Dan, he started with the cream of the crop. And Dan wasn't exactly the cream of the crop himself. And so he asked a couple girls to be his date, and they said no. But Dan was persistent. And so he just kept working down, you know, to different girls. And in and, and total, he asked 14 girls to be his date for that event. And 14 girls said no. That's pretty rough, isn't it? He got denied 14 times. But Dan was persistent. And, uh, and so second semester, a unique opportunity popped up, and that's because the student body officers, they were trying to raise money for a missions project, and so they did a date auction as a fundraiser, which is a horrible idea, but they decided that they were going to auction off dates. And, and so Dan heard about this, and he thought, this is great. Like, I can buy a date, and she can't say no. So he showed up at the date auction, and he started bidding on one of the girls who had said no to him in the fall. And her older brother, Ken, realized what was happening, so he started bidding, and he outbid Dan just to save his sister from having to go on a date with Dan. And, uh, but Dan was persistent. And so, you know, most of the auction had gone on. He still didn't want a date. And so uh, one of these girls, Beth, was one of the last girls left, and so he started bidding on her, and uh, he was determined to win. And the bidding kept going higher and higher. It was higher than anyone else had been all night. But Dan kept bidding, and he finally won. And Dan got a date. Well, that's a goofy story uh, about a goofy guy. And I could tell multiple stories about my roommate, Dan. Um, but, but, but I think we all recognize when we hear a story like that, that, that buying a date with a girl who doesn't like you is not how romance is supposed to work. There needs to be interest, desire, and relationship, not just a financial transaction. And yet that's exactly, as we come to our text today, how oftentimes people approach a relationship to God and how it is that we market the gospel in evangelism. So, so we sell the gospel by telling people that the gospel can solve their problems and that it can give them a ticket out of hell, and so we tell them everything that the gospel can give them, and then we invite people to say some magic words, and if you say these words, then, then you'll get all of these wonderful things over here. And, and we sell the gospel, much like a car salesman sells a car. But our text for today, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, teaches that receiving the gospel is much more than buying a product. It is about coming to a person with humility 
with submission and gratitude to enjoy a loving relationship that forever changes the course of my life. So let's read Romans 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul says, it says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints." Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, this passage introduces the book of Romans with a bang. And it packs a ton of rich, heartwarming, and very important theology into just a few verses. And it's organized around four important themes, kind of introductory themes of the letter. And so first of all, Paul introduces himself as the author of the book. Now, I'm not going to repeat today all the background information to to Romans uh, that I did last Sunday. Uh, Instead, I want to focus on Paul's three descriptions of himself in verse 1, and I want to make two practical applications. So first of all, Paul reminds us here that we are servants of Christ. Now, now when we read verse 1, it's important that we remember that Paul had never visited this church. So, So he had never met many of these people. So, so it's significant to me that, that his very first words to this Roman church are what? I'm Paul, and he doesn't say, the great apostle. No, his very first words to them are, I am a bondservant of Christ Jesus. Now, he does, of course, mention his apostleship second, but Paul wants, to think of him fir- he wants them to think of him first as a bondservant of Christ Jesus. And so he's setting a very important tone from the outset of his relationship to them at the outset of this letter that I belong to the Lord and I am his to use however he may desire. Now, now as a result, Paul Paul is saying one implication of this is that what follows is God's message, not mine. I am not telling you my message or preaching to you my agenda. I am a bondservant of Christ. So what follows is God's message. But but bondservant also sets an important spiritual tone that is vital to what follows. So specifically, Paul's saying that that my life is not about me. I am a servant of Christ. And of course, that should be true of every one of us. If you are saved, the moment you got saved, your life stopped being about you. Your life belongs to Christ because Christ bought you on the cross. And so, it's good for us to remember often that that I'm not on this earth. I'm not here to pursue my agenda or my passions, my goals. I'm here to serve Christ however He desires. And and so, I am a bondservant of Christ Jesus. And then second, Paul reminds us that we are ambassadors of the gospel. So, the third description Paul gives of himself is is that he is set apart for the gospel of God. 
Now, now when Paul says that there, he is primarily thinking of his unique role as the apostle to the Gentiles, right? So, so, so God had given Paul a unique mission to, to, to lay the foundation of the Gentile church. You know, and it's an important part of the book of Romans that, that God did not want the gospel to remain a local phenomenon. He wanted the gospel to go to the ends of the earth, and so he, he, he called Paul to lay the foundation of this church. And of course, we know from, from Acts and the epistles that Paul zealously embraced that mission, and he gave his life to it. Now, of course, today, uh, 2,000 years later, there's no more apostles on the church who are laying the foundation of the church. But of course, God is all the time calling people to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And, and I think it's, you know, sometimes we're afraid of that. But it's good for us to remember often that there is no higher calling we could receive than to be set apart as a fisher of men. And there's nothing greater that God could call your children or grandchildren to do than to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And of course, God has given a similar mission to all of us. A Second Corinthians chapter 5, 18 says... That, that now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So if you have been reconciled to God, you have received the most precious gift imaginable. You are right with God. And now God calls you to, to, to work, to, to reconcile others to God. So God expects you to be busy. Sharing that hope of the gospel that, 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 that is a, a vital part of your calling. I mean, every Christian, in a sense, has been set apart for the gospel. We are not here for ourselves. We are here for the gospel. So, so how faithfully are you sharing your faith? When was the last time that you actually walked through the gospel with another person and invited them to trust Christ as their Savior? When was the last time you gave someone a gospel tract? Now, how is it that you are engaged through the life of the church, partnering with your church family to, to see the gospel go throughout our community and to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth? Now, I mean, again, this is simple. This is basic stuff, but it's stuff that we, we forget so often that, that, that God didn't save you. He didn't give you this precious gift simply for your good. And he certainly didn't give it to you so that you could you know, hide it under a bushel, as the old song says. No, he gave it to you to take it to other people. He set you apart to join in the most important task that mankind has ever received, which is the Great Commission. So God has called us to be ambassadors of the gospel. And then notice that verses 2 through 4 proceed to tell us more about the great gospel that we preach. And so they talk about the message. And, and there's a lot packed into verses 2 through 4 regarding what, what verse 1 calls the gospel of God. So, so I think that I, I love that phrase, gospel of God, because it tells us that the gospel is not just a great offer, a great deal. It is actually God's personal message of salvation to sinners. And so notice, first of all, that the gospel is rooted in prophecy. So, so verse 2 says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, now, to Gentile Christians like us, right, we're living 2,000 years after the fact. So, so in our day, Christianity is a well-established religion with, with 2,000 years of history. So, so verse 2 is one that, 
might not strike us as all that significant. But we have to remember that in Paul's day, in the first century world, Christianity would have seemed like a new invention. And it would seem that it didn't have nearly the long theological tradition of a religion like Judaism, or even of something like Greek mythology. As you can imagine, Paul showing up in town preaching the gospel and talking about this guy Jesus who just a couple of decades prior had died on the cross. And and people are thinking, you're telling me that a guy that just lived a few years ago is the only way of salvation, that he is the Messiah and he alone is the one that we need to believe? Well, Paul responds by, by saying that the gospel is not a new invention. It is rooted in God's promise beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Of course, the New Testament emphasizes that all the time, that, 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 that God said at the beginning, at the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, that someday the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. You know, God gave Israel all those sacrifices as a, as a, as a pointer to, to the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus would give on the cross. The Davidic covenant, which comes up in a couple of verses, puts all of Israel's hope in a coming Davidic king who would reign and rule and, and, and accomplish God's purposes. The prophets spoke constantly about a coming Messiah. And then Jesus came, and the Gospels tell us that he fulfilled many of these prophecies to a T. So so what Paul is saying here is something that, that, yes, we sometimes take for granted, but is vitally important, that is that the Gospel is deeply rooted in biblical theology and prophecy. Jesus is the long-expected Messiah, and because of that, the Gospel is true, it is authoritative, and it is powerful to save. And so we should be thankful today that, that we don't worship a myth. You know, Dustin talked in Sunday school about worshiping a, a block of wood that someone carves into an idol. We don't do that. No, we worship the true Son of God who really was born to save. And then the second truth about the gospel is that, or I forgot to advance my slides here. Uh, no, I didn't. Never mind. Now I messed up. All right. Then the second truth about the gospel is that the gospel is the message of Christ. Now, now going back to my introduction, this fact is really important. Because so often, when you think about gospel presentations and maybe training that we, rec- we receive to share the gospel, so often we, we market the gospel primarily based on the benefits that it can give to the sinner. So, so we tell people, if you trust in Jesus... Jesus can fix your problems. Jesus can give you relationship. Jesus can bring peace to your heart. And Jesus can give you a a home in heaven. And so we tell people all these things. And of course, who's going to say no to that? I I don't want to be lonely. I want my problems to go away. And and I do want to be clear that the Bible does use these sorts of things in gospel appeals. So I'm not saying that you should never say, trust in Christ so that you can go to heaven. Or, or that you should not say, you know, belonging to Christ and, you know, and talk about all the good things that Jesus gives. We should do that. But, but folks, what, what Paul emphasizes here is that we have to make sure that we emphasize the truth of verse 3. Specifically, the gospel is not fundamentally a man-centered transaction. No, the gospel concerns his son. So the gospel 
is about a person and about relationship to that person that changes everything about me. So folks, Jesus is the gospel. The gospel is about Christ. And and he is the greatest blessing that someone receives in the gospel. Christ is the greatest blessing. And so so verses 3 and 4 then explain why Jesus is such a big deal. So first of all, the gospel, the gospel is a big deal because Jesus is the eternal son of God. So notice there that that verse 3 begins again by saying that the gospel concerns his son. And, and, And that statement there clearly implies that Jesus' life did not begin at Bethlehem. Because he says the gospel concerns his son, which he says in time he was he was born according to the flesh. Now, now I recognize that that probably for most of us in this room, the eternal sonship of Jesus it is something that that we take for granted. It's not something that we uh, worry about much. But but folks, it wasn't old news in Paul's day in the Gentile world. Jesus, or excuse me, Paul showed up in town and said that Jesus is the Son of God. That was a big deal. And I think that it's probably something that we take for granted far too much when we talk to people about the gospel, particularly in our day. You know, because many people in our day, you walk around town, you know, I go to Little League games with my boys, and you go into Walmart, go to community center, go to the park, you talk to people in Apple Valley, I would venture to guess that the vast majority of people in Apple Valley would say they believe in God. And if you ask them, do you believe in Jesus? They're going to say they believe in Jesus. But the reality is, you look at their lives, and you look at, and if you really were to begin asking them questions about Jesus, they don't really believe in the Jesus of the Bible. That he is fully God. And so, I think that... that, that that we need, as, as our culture continues to change, as we move further away from Christianity, that we need to be really good when we share the gospel about starting with who God really is. There's not just a, you know, kind of a fuzzy God out there and a fuzzy Jesus who was a good teacher and said a lot of great things and was a great man. That we need to tell people, Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Because the gospel falls apart. Without that simple fact. So, so, so the passage here begins by emphasizing that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And then secondly, it tells us that Jesus is the, promise, the promised Son of David. So he says there again in verse 3, Concerning his Son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Now, now that statement again uh, emphasizes the idea we already talked about that Jesus is, uh, that the gospel is grounded in, in centuries of Old Testament prophecy, and especially in God's promise that he would send the Messiah from the line of David. So, so what, what Paul is saying here in part is that Jesus is that one. He is the person that, that God told David you know, some, some 900 years prior to this, that someday I will send a seed from your line and he will save his people. He will be a king, and, and he will save people from their sins, establish my kingdom, and, and reconcile things to myself. So he is that prophesied son, but, but this statement also emphasizes his humanity. 
Because what does it say? It says he was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. So Jesus was not just fully God. He was also truly man. And we need to emphasize that there is no gospel apart from that fact. That that Jesus had to become one of us. If he were to fulfill the law and all righteousness, he had to become one of us if he were to die in our place on the cross. And of course, Jesus did all of that. He lived a perfect life. And then the Bible tells us that he endured our judgment on the cross and he took our debt out of the way. And it is so important as we talk to people about the gospel that we emphasize that substitutionary death of Christ. That I am a sinner who has violated God's law. And my only hope is that Jesus bore my judgment and Jesus took it out of the way. Of course, Paul uh, doesn't emphasize that, that death of Christ here because his main concern in, con- in context is not so much with the means of salvation, but with the person of Christ. So, so he has declared that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And then he adds a third truth in verse 4 that that doesn't get nearly as much attention as those two, but but really is important, and that is, is that Jesus is the rightful Lord of creation. So look at what he says. He says of Jesus that he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. According to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. I was listening to a sermon this week on this passage, and, and the preacher uh, in the sermon mentioned that very few gospel tracts talk about the resurrection. And I thought it was an interesting observation, and I think it's true, that, that most of the time when we share the gospel, or, or when we give someone a gospel tract, that we talk a lot about the fact that Jesus died, and the resurrection is sort of like a little appendix, you know, kind of like finishes the story so it doesn't have a bad ending. And I think that's because oftentimes we don't really appreciate the significance of the resurrection and why it is so important if someone is going to really believe the gospel and live in light of it. So, now now there are several reasons in Scripture why the resurrection is vital to our faith. But verse 4 says that it is especially important for Jesus' relationship with humanity. So, so Paul says in verse 4 that he was declared, or, or, or maybe a, a better translation would be that he was appointed the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Now, now you might be wondering, well, what exactly does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus was appointed the Son of God? I mean, didn't we just say that he is the eternal Son of God? So if he's the eternal Son of God, how could he be appointed the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead? Now, now that is an important question. And and I want to emphasize that that we did just say that that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And, And if Jesus only became the Son of God at the resurrection, that creates a lot of problems. Specifically, if Jesus only became the Son of God in the resurrection, that would mean that, there, that, that God, that the Father and the Son's relationship changed. Of course, that would mean that the structure of the Trinity changed. And God changed. All right? And that's heresy. All right? 
So, so you cannot say that Jesus became the Son of God at the resurrection. We, we, we believe in the eternal sonship of Christ. And, and the Gospels, the Bible teaches that. So for example, when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in Mark chapter 1, verse 11, what does God the Father say? He says, you are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. So long before Jesus rose from the dead, God the Father calls him his Son. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus oftentimes refers to himself as the Son of God. So Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Right, but, so, so you're wondering then, well, what in the world does it mean in verse 4 that he was appointed the Son at the resurrection? Well, here's my summary of it, and then I'll, I'll try and unpack this. That, that through the resurrection, that the resurrection affirmed and declared Jesus' sonship. It affirmed and declared it, and thereby qualified him to rule over his creation. So when Jesus rose from the dead, it was God's declaration to the world that this is my son. And in that declaration, Jesus gained the right to rule over all creation. Now, now we need to unpack this from a few passages and be patient with me. We're going to walk through some kind of complicated stuff that, that, that I hope at the end we'll see is really relevant and really important for how we share the gospel and for how we think about our own faith. So, so all this begins with an important prophecy in Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8, which say that he, speaking of God the Father, said to me, speaking of Jesus, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. So, so what is God saying there? He is saying that the, it's the prophecy there is that someday in time, God the Father is going to declare Jesus his son. And in that declaration, a part of that declaration, is he is going to give him the authority to rule over the nations. And Psalm 2 talks about how he will crush his enemies in that day, and he will rule in righteousness over the earth. So, and the apostles taught that God made this declaration in the resurrection. All right, so Acts chapter 13. Paul is preaching in a Jewish synagogue in Pisidian Antioch on the first missionary journey. And he says there, he says, and we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. So, so you see what Paul is doing there? He says, God raised Jesus from the dead. And in the resurrection, he fulfilled that prophecy that we just read in Psalm 2. He fulfilled that prophecy in the resurrection of Christ. And of course, our text is saying the same thing. That he was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Now, you might wonder, well, how is that relevant at all to me? And what does that have to do with my work to share the gospel? And that's a good question. And in response, notice how Peter appeals to this very truth in the climactic moment of the first Christian evangelistic sermon in Acts chapter 2 at the Sermon at Pentecost. 
So Peter, at this point, this is the, this is the, I mean, this is the, the final appeal of the, of the sermon at Pentecost. And, and Peter has just declared that Jesus is the Son of God, that, that he uh, died on the cross, that he rose again, that he has ascended to the Father's right hand. And, and he ends his sermon by saying, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this, which you see in here, he says, for it, or I better advance the slide. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So, so what's very significant about that is that in Peter's climactic appeal at the, in this sermon, he, he tells the people that through the resurrection, Jesus was exalted to the Father's right hand. Right? And, and then he quotes from Psalm 110. And he says that right now Jesus is sitting at the Father's right hand because of the resurrection and he is awaiting the day where he will put his enemies under his feet. He is Lord through the resurrection, and based on that, he says, he has been made both Lord and Christ. So, so, so why should people respond to the gospel? You know, what if you share the gospel with someone, or you try, start sharing the gospel with someone, and, and they're like, you know, I'm good. I'm good. I, I'm happy. My life is okay. I, I don't really need Jesus, and I'm pretty content with the way my life is going. Well, Peter answers that the resurrection declares that Jesus is Lord of all creation. And someday, he's going to return and he is going to crush his enemies. He is going to make them a footstool for his feet. And more specifically, he is your Lord. And someday, you will bow the knee to Jesus yourself. And similarly, our text says that the Spirit raised Jesus with power, declaring Jesus Christ our Lord. So so Jesus is the Lord because he rose from the dead. Acts 2 says because he rose from the dead, he is your authority and someday you will be held accountable to him. Now, that's the side of the gospel that we don't tend to emphasize. Because sinners like to be Lord themselves. So, so we tend to share the gospel in such a way that, that works around and supports their understanding that they are the boss. So we cater to their pride and we cater to their selfish interests. And I think the end result is, is that we have a lot of people who make false confessions of faith. They, they never really see Jesus for who he is. Or if they are truly converted since they haven't ever really wrapped their fingers around the authority and lordship of Christ, they remain very immature. They never grow. They, they never push forward as they should. So, so we really need to emphasize that Christ is the heart of the gospel. And that getting saved is so much more than just saying some magic words that get you a post of blessings. We need to tell people that Jesus is fully God and he is fully man and he is Lord before whom I must repent. 
and to whom I must submit. Now, of course, we also need to emphasize that a relationship to Christ is wonderful, right? That, that, that He is a loving Savior, that He is full of generous mercy. And we need to tell people that knowing Christ in the gospel is better than all the other stuff that we could enjoy. And Christ really is the best blessing of the gospel. So, so, so if you are in Christ, rejoice in who Jesus is. Worship Him for all that He has done. Draw near to Him as your advocate and friend. Obey Him as your Lord. And we should all look forward to the day when he will do what he says there, that he will come again and he will crush his enemies and they will be the footstool for his feet. And if you're not saved, respond to Peter's invitation right after that passage. He says in verse 38, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. If you have never bowed the knee to Christ, then, then, then the God's message to you is clear. You need to recognize Jesus for who he really is. You need to recognize how you have offended him in your sin, and you need to bow the knee, repent of your sin, and come to him for forgiveness and salvation. So that is the glorious message of the gospel. And now let's discuss the mission that God had given Paul. So verse 5 goes on and says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Of course, these verses uh, describe the, the Gentile mission that God had given to Paul. And, and there are aspects of, of verse 5 that are unique to Paul, right? Because he is the apostle to the Gentiles, and, and none of us are the apostles to the Gentiles. But, but through the Great Commission, God has called all of us, right, to, to the same basic task, of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth and, and seeing disciples and churches established. So Paul makes three points about this mission that are very important for us. And the first is, is that the gospel demands faith and obedience. Now, it's very interesting to me how, how Paul describes his work. He says there, we've received grace and apostleship for what? To bring about the obedience of faith. So, so there's two, two ideas there that are very important, and, and I doubt that we have any issue at all with, with the second of those, faith, right? Because, you know, Romans chapter 4 is going to emphasize the fact that we are justified by faith, that we are not saved by works, that, that we trust in Christ, and that we are saved by grace. It is a gift that we receive by faith. But, but we may wonder, but, but how does obedience fit into that? Like, what is the connection between faith and obedience? Well, the answer is in what we just discussed about the centrality of Christ to the gospel and his lordship over creation. So, so again, we need to emphasize that, that getting saved is not merely saying some words. You know, say some magic words and now you've got your ticket to heaven and all is well. No, getting saved is about coming into a right relationship with Jesus Christ our Lord. And, and, and there's no way that you can be right with the Lord apart from obedience. You know, that, that even when I repent of my sin, I am acknowledging His authority and, and how I have sinned against Him. And there is a submission that is inherent to all of it. So, so, so yes, 
we should plead with sinners to receive the free gift of salvation. But we also have to call them to bow the knee to Christ's lordship over all of life. Because if they don't get that side to the gospel, and they just see the gospel as as a way to to avoid hell and and a way to feel better about myself, and so they can tell people, I believe in Jesus, and and feel good, then they've really missed. They, they, They don't understand who Jesus is. Like if someone says, I believe in Jesus, but they're living in an outright rebellion against God with, with no regard. They do not get who Jesus is, what their sin is, or how the gospel changes everything. So, so don't forget that we aren't merely in the business of getting people to pray a prayer. We are in the business of calling people to the obedience of faith. Not as a way to merit salvation, but but just simply as as a necessary corollary to rightly understanding who Christ is. And then a second point about the mission is that our field is the world. Paul says that he does this among all the Gentiles. Now, now to appreciate that little phrase, we, we need to remember that Paul was a Jew living in the first century. And that for 1,500 years, God had told the Jews that they were to remain separate from the nations. We just saw in the book of Ezra that that Ezra had the the Jews put away their foreign wives so that they could be exclusively committed to the Lord. So so, so the whole point, I mean, one of the, the central purposes of the law was to keep Israel separate. And now here's Paul, only a couple decades later, saying, my job is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. I mean, that is a radical statement for a first century Jew. And yet it was true then, and it's still true today. That our mission is not merely to reach people with the gospel. As much as we want to do that, and we want to reach people right here in Apple Valley, that's important. But our mission also involves taking the gospel to the ends of the earth to reaching people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And so, it's good to emphasize that that world missions is not just a a cute little sideshow to what we're really trying to do as a church. Like, we're really trying to have an awesome church in Apple Valley and having a missions program makes us look good. No, world missions is essential to our work because God has called us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And then a third point about our mission is that our mission is, or that the goal is Christ's glory. And what does Paul say? He says he does all of this not for his name's sake and not even for the good of the people. He does all of this for his name's sake. And I, and I can't make this point any better uh, than, than John Piper famously did in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. So I'm just going to read what he says. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. So worship is the fuel and goal of missions. Now, now certainly, we care about people, right? 
The Bible tells us that we should care about people and we should grieve over their lost condition and grieve over the fact that they are on their way to hell. But, but if, if people are the ultimate goal of missions, then, then it's not going to be long before we start getting our ideas about what people need and about what we ought to be doing mixed up with what God says they really need. And, and there's plenty of, plenty of testimony in the history of the church to demonstrate that that's exactly what happens. And, and then the other thing that can happen is that we lose interest in people. They're evil. They do horrible things. And it doesn't take long before, like, you know, I'm done with you, and I'm not sharing the gospel with you anymore. But, but if God's glory is the goal, if God's glory is our passion, then we have endless motivation, endless confidence, and a firm foundation. And, and, the, and we will deliver the very best gift that we can give, which is God himself in all of his glory and beauty. And, and Paul says that he has given his life to this mission. I mean, his, his whole passion was to see, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. And, and, and so that's challenging for us because think about the fact that you can give your life to a lot of things that are awesome for a moment. And some of them matter for a moment. But then they're gone. Or you can invest your life in the most important mission of this age. The one that is absolutely certain to be fulfilled and the one that bears eternal fruit. And that is the Great Commission. So so how about you? Are you zealous for the glory of God? And when you turn on the TV, you turn on a, a football game, or uh, you see some large crowd, and just like, oh, cool, a game. Or do you ever look at 50,000 people in the stands and think, the vast majority of those people have not bowed the knee to Jesus? You see pictures, you know, of scenes throughout the world, cities, massive cities around the world, you know, where you know, maybe a fraction of 1% of those people believe the gospel. And folks, that should, that should irk us. It, it should move us that God is not receiving the worship that He deserves. So, so what role does the Great Commission play in, in your life, practically speaking, today? In, in how you spend your money, your time, your passions, your prayers, your plans for the future. Folks, if God's glory through the spread of the gospel is not central to all of that, like like if the gospel and the Great Commission is not like right up there, question number one, with every major fast of your life and every decision you make, you're missing it. The gospel of God concerning His Son should drive our lives. So, so we have a wonderful message and a wonderful mission. And then notice the final part of Paul's introduction. Paul mentions this church. And he says in verses 6 and 7, among whom you, are, you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, call the saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so I want to make, just briefly mention three ideas about the church from these verses. And the first is, that we are loved by God. You know, Paul calls the Roman church, and, and by extension, every Christian, 
What's he call us in verse 6 or 7? We are beloved of God. And that's a good, you could say, counterbalance uh, to a lot of what I've said today. That, that, that yes, we exist for God's glory and, and God has called us to bow the knee before Him, but, but we aren't just merely pawns in God's pursuit of His own glory and power. No. The Bible is clear that God has chosen to love wretched sinners like us and, and to make incredible sacrifice out of love for people like us. And, and folks, it is truly incredible that, that you and I are beloved of God. We are loved by God. Secondly, we are called by God. So what is, verse 6 describes the church as the called of Jesus Christ. And verse 7 says that we are called as saints. So, so both of those statements uh, speak of God's initiative, that God sought us, and He loved us when we did not seek Him, and He brought us to Christ. He called us to Christ, and then He set us apart as saints, or, or you could say as His special holy people. And it is a wonderful blessing to belong to Christ. And we should be so thankful that God called us out of the world to himself to be his saints. And then third, we are blessed by God. Now Paul says, he prays for them for grace and peace. And you know, it's interesting that Paul opens all 13 of his letters, all 13, with a prayer for grace and peace. Because the blessing of God is the foundation of the Christian life. Like I'm lost without grace and and we should emphasize that peace here is not, you know, some like, you know, meditating tranquility. That's the idea here is the Hebrew concept of shalom. It's the, the, the well-being or, or blessing of God. So, so, so what Paul is saying here is that we swim in a sea of grace and peace. We are blessed of God. So, so this passage reminds us that we have received Incredible blessings in God's gospel of Christ. So if you have never received this gospel, and maybe you've, you've kind of had a, you know, a fuzzy belief in God and Christianity and the Bible your whole life, but, but, but you've never come into a personal relationship with Christ, I hope that today you will bow the knee before Christ. You'll recognize that you have sinned against Him. And, and, and rest in the finished work of Christ in His death and resurrection and be saved. And you can leave knowing Christ, having a relationship with Him. And, and if you are saved, remember that the gospel is all about God. And Christianity is fundamentally a relationship to God in Christ. So give thanks for, for that relationship. And draw near to, to Christ through the gospel. And then let's be faithful like Paul to go to the ends of the earth, to take the gospel to the ends of the world for the sake of his name. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the gospel concerning your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we look forward to the day that Jesus returns and rules over all of creation. And Lord, I pray for any here today that have not received this gospel, that today they would repent of their sins and be born again.
And for those of us who know you as Savior, I pray that every day of our lives we would long to live under the umbrella of your grace, that we would draw near to you for grace, and then we would go for the sake of your name to all people to share the good news that Jesus saves for your glory and honor. Oh Lord, we pray that you'd use us. I pray that you'd use our church here in Apple Valley to reach people for the gospel. And God, use us not just here in our community, but but use us, Lord, throughout the world to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.